Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you as well. We have been working our way through 1 Corinthians and we're coming near the end. It's kind of fun because there's a lot of really great stuff that's happening. A lot of times you and I probably make, or most of us make our decisions on anything really based on the longevity or what we'll get out of it. We make the decision like, I don't want to drive out there to spend 15 minutes. I'd rather drive out, if I'm going to drive out to the space, I'd rather go for this. Or, or when you think about vacations, like, I don't want to go on a vacation for only a couple days. It's such a long way to travel. We should really spend some more time there. We do the same thing with finances. If we're going to buy something or spend money on something, we always take kind of the, the, the approach where we at least look at it for some extent to go, okay, well, if I spend this much money, it's going to last this many years or this long. And so we, we kind of bring about the value of doing what we're doing based on what we believe how long it will last or how, how much we'll get out of it over time. That's, that's something that we continually do in our lives, whether it's our time, it's our finances, it's relationships. It is, it is somewhat selfish, but also one would argue that it can be wise at times. And that's really where I think that the, the Lord wants us to go with this section of 1 Corinthians. Last week, if you were here, we worked through the idea of chap, uh, chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. We talked about how this is just a weird and amazing section of Scripture. It's, it's an incredible poem, and yet at the same time, it's just, it's just rich with theology. It's, it's, it's got a chiastic structure to it. It's just, it almost looks like it doesn't belong in this section of this book. Yet it, here it is planted right in the middle of just a, a lot of really interesting things that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is trying to combat with the issues that were happening in the church in Corinth. Really beginning back in chapter 11 with the idea of, of order, that we need to find order with inside the church, and this is a continuation of it. And really, if you remember just real quickly, going all the way back, what were the Corinthians struggling with? They were struggling with divisiveness. They were struggling with, with dividing themselves based on socioeconomic status. They were dividing themselves based on who they believed was the smartest person to follow, or whose, whose rhetoric was better, and how, how they spoke was better. And so there were some saying, I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Paul. And there was divisiveness there. And this letter was sent to the Apostle Paul with questions why he's in Ephesus. And so he's been working his way through answering a lot of the struggles that they were having, having in Corinth. And then this is just kind of lumped in here. This isn't one of those questions or one of those things that they even posed a question to. There's no understanding for this. Not, he's not combating this. What he's talking about is the ideas of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the gifts, the way that those play out. What was happening is a lot of, the, a lot of the, the Corinthians were seeing hierarchy and value based on which gift was present or not present. And so they were establishing themselves saying, well, if I speak in tongues and you only have the, 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 gift, the gift of health, well, that, that's just a less, lesser valuable, lesser quality, and it doesn't matter. He spent a lot of time talking about the value of all of those. And then he kind of seems to like pause and stop and get to what we talked about last week, which was love. The great love chapter. And although many, many weddings have this at their wedding, it's not a wedding verse necessarily. It's actually a, a, an incomplete understanding of love because it doesn't include sacrifice, which we know that greater love is this, that someone should lay down their life for someone else, right? Like we know that sacrifice is a, is, is a big part of love. 
But what he did was he made up a bunch of words, he changed nouns into verbs, and, and kind of made this section into this love thing, and we started talking about love, and every single action that he said that love was in place was a, an action, not meant to be something that we, we think or feel, but something that we do. Love is, love is based on action, and we talked about the different levels of love, and, and really what he's doing is he was applying love to the to the Corinthian church, showing why their behaviors were unacceptable. And, and ultimately, all the ways that he says love is, love is this, love is this, he's doing all of that with the understanding that each one of them are done as, a, as an action, as something that's happening on a regular basis. It's something that, that he expects not only to be said or felt, but to be lived out on a regular basis. And he hits all of them. The, the Corinthians were... They were boasting. We see that in 3.21, and it says, love does not boast, right? They were puffed up even in wrongdoing, chapter 5, 1 through 2. They were unwilling to suffer long or bear all things, chapter 6, 1 through 8. Yet love is patient, both at the beginning, and it endures all things at the end of the last week's section. They were acting rude, 11, 1 through 16. They were insisting on their own way without any regard for others, chapter 11, verses 21 through 22. And they were jealous and envious, chapter 12. 21 through 22. So the, the definition to love he brings in is, is brought in based on the actions that they're showing. So as, as much as we want to pluck this section out and just kind of make it this fun little love chapter, we have to really kind of force ourselves to keep it back in the context of where it is and why it's here and what is he, what is he trying to accomplish and what does is, what is the Lord want from us to know? We, we established last week that the primary problem with followers of Jesus is not is not, connecting that love, is, is not connecting love to everything we do. We, we try to divorce those two from each other. We, we want to see the spiritual gifts move out. We want to see manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We want to see great works happening, but we, we forget that love is supposed to be the, 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 literally the thing with which everything is, is implemented in and through and done by. We want to we want to say I, I want to understand Scripture. I want to be so smart. And I want to I want my I want the best theology, but we divorce theology from love. And that just is not, not acceptable. In fact, the one way of all the ways that God could identify us as believers to this world, it, it, like he could have said because of our church attendance and we could have little attendance cards that we could do or because of, because of the way we give our money and we could have our bank accounts open. No, he says you want to know, the world wants to know, and the way that they're going to know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers is by the way that you love one another. And it's that agape love. And real quickly, I want to just read what one scholar said about agape love so that you guys can understand it. Because again, we say I love cheeseburgers and I love when there's no traffic and I love my wife. And hopefully they're all very, very different in the way we describe them. Uh, this agape love is love that, that's without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. The word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Established last week that many of us say, I love you, but really what we're saying is, is I like you or I lust you, but I like the way you make me feel. Love is, it can be very selfish if we're not careful. And he puts this in here while trying to talk about, look, this is greater. Love is greater than all of these other things. If he went back just a little bit in 13, he's like, look, if I, if I do all these amazing things, if I speak in tongues of, of men and angels, if I, if I prophesy and if I do all these things, but I have not love, it's all lost. And this, is, this week is just a continuation of that in verse 8 where we pick up. So you will read with me real quickly. 
Verse 8 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And so the very first thing he says is, is love never ends. And, or never, some, of your, some of your context or some of your verses might say love never fails. Love, love never fails is, is we can tend to think about it as love messing up. Like many of you are like, man, but I've, I've messed up in love and I, I've made mistakes. That's, this is not really the context. It has more to do with time than it does frequency. Meaning that love will never end in time. It's not a matter of frequency or how often we are loving. It's, it's a matter of the fact that, that, look, love is going to go on forever. And really, that's the point of the section. He literally starts it with love never ends. The first three words of, of verse 8, the last three words, the greatest, or the four words, the greatest of these is love. That's five words. I'm bad at math, apparently, okay? So either way, stay with me. Focus on the right part, okay? The point of this section is he's trying to establish something that would give them and in turn give us the motivation to understanding. Remember, we, we all make decisions based on like what's the return on this investment? How much, how much time do I have to give and where will this really go? If you go back to chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, when he hits all of that really fun, difficult stuff on how we are to live with sexual morality and all that other stuff, remember, the whole point wasn't to try and behavior modify. It was to show them that the way that we are to live is to be congruent with the kingdom that we are part of. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are part of his kingdom that will be ushered in and will be brought in again when Jesus comes back and do away with all brokenness and all, all pain, and we will be part of that. And he's saying we should live true to that today, even though it's not complete yet. And that's the point he's making with love. He's saying, look, you can speak in tongues. You can prophesy. You can do all those things. He comes here and says, look, love is the only thing that never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, I have to pause on this section just, just a little bit because in a lot of ways, uh, this is one of those sections that can be kind of a landmine depending upon your theology. Some have used this section or this verse, specifically verse 8, as a reason to say that the gifts have completely ended. And they, they, it depends on their belief of what timeline is being presented. Meaning, they, they, some, some would teach that there is no more tongues, there is no more prophecy, there is none of that stuff, depending upon how you define those things, which we're going to spend time defining those starting next week. Um, but it's based on the time, and they would say, well, look, it, we, we can do the Greek word study, and he's like, wow, he's, he uses different words here for one is pass away, and the other is cease, and, and, one will, and then the next one's pass away, and those are... Those are two different words that are used. So one would be in, in the sense that it's done to it, and the other would be that something that just happens and it falls away. Again, I think there's, it's valuable to study that way, but a lot of times we have to remember that this is, this, is the, um, this is a very poetic writing of Scripture. It would have been kind of like bland for him to say the same thing over and over and over again. But really, the reason why I think, and most scholars come out of that don't believe that that the gifts end, is based on what he says after in verses, uh, verses 10. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
So if we take this and just keep in context, instead of taking one verse at a time, which I love studying through one verse at a time, but sometimes you can get in a lot of trouble if you just kind of narrow in. If we take this in context of this, and then after 14, he goes into the idea of resurrection, which was an issue that the Corinthians were having. We're going to get into that too. Essentially, this text isn't saying that these are going to stop because of, some would say, when scriptures were fulfilled or when Jesus came. Many would say many different reasons why. It doesn't make sense when we define what the perfect comes is. And that's where there's, honestly, as, as fun as it is, there's eight different ways you can define the perfect comes. Okay, so we're going to sit down. Let's, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Sorry. Really, the way that makes the most sense, whether you believe in one of the, the theologic terms, dispositions or time, time frames of, of when things are happening, or if you believe that gifts aren't there, when we look at the, the language of the perfect comes, even if you believe that the gifts have ended, almost all the scholars land on the perfect comes, meaning it's the complete, it's the finish of Jesus coming in his resurrection. It's not just him showing up. It's, it doesn't matter what you do with your end times theology, essentially what, we, what most scholars agree on is that the perfect comes is when the imperfect goes away. It's the ushering in of the new kingdom. It's when Jesus returns, makes all right, every knee bows. This is really what everyone agrees with, but some people try to define two verses earlier as if that's not the timeline. It just doesn't make sense. And if you take it into the context again to where this is set with chapter 15, it's pretty safe, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse or make some of you go, wait, I didn't even know this. Basically, what we believe that scriptures say is that the gifts are still very much alive and that there's still a purpose for them, and the purpose, and that's what the last three chapters have been, is there's a way to do them within order that is the building up of the church, that is the continuation of Jesus' mission that he began when he was indwelled by the Holy Spirit while he walked this earth. And so that's really what this section means, but that's not the point of this section. We can get stuck in the weeds, so I'm not going to go there. He says, we know in part now, and we prophesy in part. Now, this is not a slam on those that have prophesied or those, even the Old Testament prophets that spoke. It's not like, well, they only knew so much. They're, they're just pathetic. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, and this should bring so much hope to all of us. He's saying, look, no matter how much we know, no matter how much has been revealed, and no matter how much has been sh shared, it's still only in part. It's still, it's still only so much that we can know because we are fully known by God. That's what it says at the end. But we yet to fully know him until we are in his presence face to face. So this section shows that, look, as valuable as prophecy, and I love that he chooses these three gifts. Okay, He uses prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. If you remember, knowledge was the one that they were all fighting about. The Corinthians were all fighting about knowledge. They were into the sophists, the people that were coming and speaking. They were, everything was about knowledge. It was like, if you could be intellectual, you were seen as better. And so they just loved the idea of knowledge. And so he picks three common gifts that they are most divisive about. This is, this is why we, we think too much is put on these three gifts going in time. He's just picking three of the lists that he did nine before that. And he's picking the, very, the three that are, that are the biggest issue in Corinth right now. Knowledge, tongues, and prophecy. Prophecy wasn't as big of an issue, but this was a gift that was attributed to Paul. So I love that he uses his own gift in this section. So look, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. Why? Because we don't need to prophesy when we're in the presence of God. We don't, we don't need that. That's not, it's not present. That's where he's going with this. He comes in 
and says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So there's a couple things we can take from this text that's really important right here. First one is, is that no matter how smart you are or how many reasons you have to not submit to God because you don't understand everything yet and you won't do it until you understand everything, this text just shows us that we will not know completely what we want to know until he comes again. Like just, just, just take that in for a second, right? The people that, like, I remember before I came to the Lord, there were three or four different things. I'm like, well, if I'm going to believe in the Lord, these things need to get answered, right? How prideful and arrogant of me. None of those were answered, by the way, before I submitted my life to Christ. We will not know everything. The way that this usually plays out in our individual life is, is, is the, the why question. Why, why is he acting this way? Why does this happen? God, how come this is in place? Why are there locks on the 7-Eleven when they're open 24-7? It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, these questions that we have. It was a joke, people. Apparently not a good one, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll just stick to the text. I'm sorry. These, these things that we will never fully know unless he chooses to reveal them to us, right? But, but there's, a, there's a peace in, in us recognizing that, A, we're not God, and B, he has, he has given us to see what we have right now. He's given us these gifts. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit has played out in us. He's given us his scriptures. We are commanded to study and to learn, so it's not like we just run from it. But, but the instant we start going, well, I'm not moving. We plant our feet and kind of dig ourselves in like a, like a little three-year-old temper tantrum. Like, I'm not doing anything until he does this. The scriptures literally tell us, like, you're in the partial. You live in the partial. So you shouldn't be expecting the complete right now if you live in the partial. And what he says is, look, when Jesus comes, when the perfect comes, when the completeness comes, it will be complete. Knowledge won't matter because we'll be face-to-face -face with our king. Knowledge won't be something, well, I don't know what it is. We will be in the presence of the Lord. All these things will pass away. And he's saying it doesn't matter. The complete is coming the partial will pass away. And really what he does here in about four verses, he basically says the same thing in a bunch of different ways. And so we'll just run through them real quickly. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, in this scripture already, he's talked about them about maturity and, and the, the value of maturing. And he, he even said, I wish I could go deeper into to teaching more. And the same thing that's said in Hebrews, like, I want to teach you more, but we can't. You're still, you're still back here. So there is value in Scripture in we are recognizing and maturing, but that's not what he's saying here, actually. What he's saying here is just, it's just another elaboration on the fact of, look, look, when you live as a kid, you act like a kid. When you live as an adult, you've got to leave those childish ways. Now, it's worth us asking the question of ourselves as adults. Like, are there still aspects of us that are childish? But again, that's, that's not the context. He's saying, look, when, when the complete comes, you're going to operate and live completely different than the way you understand to live today. You will be, it'll be like going from a child to an adult. And every adult that spends any time around kids can see really clearly just the discrepancy in what they do know because of life and experience and everything else. And he's saying, that's what it's going to be like when the complete comes. 
You're going to stop operating this way. You're going to stop playing with toys this way. You're going to stop throwing temper tantrums this way. And instead of just masking them and making more expensive toys when you get older, it's all going to be done away with, and you're just going to become a man. You're going to become a, a woman. You're going to be mature. You're going to be complete. And you can walk and operate like an adult. So it's not a slam of, of them being childish, although, like I said, he did that earlier in, in, the, in the letter. It's, it's just him saying, you, you, you spoke, you thought, everything you did, you reasoned, you, your whole life was like a child. In the complete, you will be an adult. You'll know it. You'll reason like an adult. You'll think like an adult. You'll, you'll speak like an adult. And this is, this is not based on our definition of what child and adult is, because I think if we spent a few weeks on that, every single person here would define that differently and use different metrics for that. Then he goes on and says, and then he goes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now this is, this is an interesting one because to us it's like, oh, okay, mirror. Uh, in Corinth, they manufactured mirrors. So this was one of those analogies that like was right in front of all of their faces. This is a ton of mirrors came out in Corinth. And they were, they were always doing it. Now, and the idea, the, the picture, and the, the, the understanding, and this was used as an analogy across a lot of different teachings, is when you look at a mirror, you see not the exact, you see the opposite. It's, it's, everything's backwards. Like, try reading a shirt or reading a book backwards in the mirror. Like, you, you see it as a, as a reflection. And, and this day, the mirrors, let me say this right now, the mirrors are probably a little bit better in quality today than they were then. But they were manufactured there. And he's saying, look, right now what you see is in a mirror. It's dimly lit. It's a reflection of what it's supposed to be. It's not, it's not the real thing. The real thing is face to face with our Lord. He says, in the complete, in the perfect, when Jesus comes, you'll be face to face with the Lord. He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known you know, we see all over in Scripture the Psalms, and then Luke talks about how every hair is on our head is numbered, and, and, and the Psalm talks about how God knit us together in our mother's womb. Like, we are completely known. If you are sitting here today, whether you believe in God or not, He knows absolutely everything about you. The good, the bad, the super ugly, the things you haven't even done yet, He is fully aware of all of those things. And, and here's, the, here's, the, here's the promise. Then we shall know fully as well. Like, think about this right now. If you've spent any time, and, and maybe this is, maybe I'm going to go there either way. If you spent any time, have you ever spent any time in the Word and like you just like found yourself just get super excited and enamored and wrapped up and, and just overwhelmed by the Scripture and just like, oh my goodness, or you find yourself just like, man, I just love you, Lord. You're so good to me. And it just is overwhelming and all that kind of goodness. You're just trying to find it. You get that way when you only know him in part. Can you imagine what it means to know him fully? As a secondary point, if you aren't getting there, if you aren't excited about God, if you aren't finding yourself enamored with his love and his goodness, you're missing a key part of what it means to know the Lord, even in part right now. And so, so he says, look, by then, we'll know fully. We'll be face to face. We'll be, we'll be in the presence of Almighty God, worshiping, joining in the choir with the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? This will be our time. 
all the impartial, all the unknowns, all the dimly lit mirrors, that'll all be gone. And you'll be in front of the Lord. And he's saying all of this. Why is he saying all these things? Why is it so important for them to keep their minds and their eyes fixed on the future? Because he's asking them to love the way Christ loved. The way that we're going to continue to love in the complete. The way we're going to continue to love when the perfect comes. He's saying, look, I'm not asking you to do something that's, that's uncommon. I'm just saying, hey, if you want to kind of inve- like see a return on your investment, this is going to continue to go. And so many of us spend so much time and energy on so many other things. And he's saying, no, 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 look, you want to invest in something that's eternal, that lasts forever, that will never go away? Love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast, right? All of those things. Start loving. Start living this way. Why? Because... When you love in part, think how amazing it will be to love in full. When you see in just in part who he is, think how incredible it will be to be able to be loving fully and complete. This is is what he's saying here. And then he goes on and says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. That word abide can mean remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now this is where he, he does a little bit of wordplay we have to understand. Faith here isn't, the, the gift of faith that was talked about a few weeks ago. Faith here is salvation. It says, it says faith remains. It's, it's by faith we go. And so often when we see faith, we think of faith as, um, as just some kind of like, oh, it's just a belief. But in Scripture, it really lays out faith is almost more like faithfulness. Like it's, it's an act. It's a sight. But here's the coolest thing. Faith will be replaced by sight. That's a, that's a promise that we can all stand on. So we, so we still remain in faith. So yes, he's not saying don't do prophecy. Don't give yourselves to the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Don't pursue those things. He's already told you, pursue those. They're great. But he's saying, don't forget, faith, hope, and love are the three that remain, and the greatest of these is love. That's what he's saying. And so faith is, is going to be replaced by sight in the person of Jesus. Hope. Hope isn't like we, we hope our car started this morning. That's like wishful thinking, right? That's not the, that's not the hope of Scripture. Hope in Scripture here is, is it's more of a, um, it's more of a, uh, I hope in the, with, it's like having confident expectation in God. That's what hope is. It's, it's your hope is in Him. But here's the, here's, the best, here's the best part. Hope will be fulfilled in completeness. Man, our hope will be fulfilled. You will, you will experience that. But of all things, love, love will remain. Love, love, love. It's not going to go away. It's not going to end. It's something that will continue to exist forever. And it's the greatest of all these. You still need faith. You still need hope. He's not saying don't, again, this, this whole text, like I said last week, it's not saying, well, forget the gifts and just love. It's that they're supposed to be together. They're supposed to be together. So then I guess the question for today is, are you living today for the things that last forever? Are you living today? Are you making decisions today, this morning, right now, based on things that will last forever? Because again, like I said at the beginning, we all will make decisions based on what we're doing. Some of you are doing college right now with the expectation of what this will mean for the rest of your life. Every single one of us is capable of making decisions like this. 
Are you making the decision to live your life in a way today that would be valuable and, and, and lasting and, and in tune and in right, right, right parallel with the way that we are going to live in his kingdom anyways? Are you living that way? Or are you fixated on things that are temporary? Do you give yourself to temporary things? And here's the thing that's really crazy. It's not like these Corinthian people were, were looking for bad things. It's not bad that they were wanting to see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's not bad that they were wanting to have knowledge and do those things. It's how they were going about it. I would say the same thing for us today. It's not bad that you want to have a good job and provide for your family. It's not bad that you want to, to be the smartest theologian ever. It's not bad that you want to, to serve with the gifts that God has. It's not bad. None of those things are bad. But all of them are kind of temporary if you think about it. So we're supposed to do them. We're supposed to give ourselves to serving and to knowing the Lord and, and to reading Scripture and to, and to pushing that partial as far as we can, digging into that Scripture, going, God, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. He's a good God, and he will reveal to you what he wants to reveal to you, and you can continue to push in there. But, but in putting that in place of love, you'd say, man, you've missed it entirely. Another thing I would ask you is, are you hung up on a question that we may never see clearly yet? Like how I asked that? <laughs> are you hung up on a question right now? Something in your life, like, I just don't know why God would do this. I just, I can't see God in this way. When I read this scripture, it really frustrates me. And I've, I've studied these things. Are you hung up on a question right now that you're not going to see clearly and you may never see clearly until the completeness? And, and the reason why I ask that question is because I feel like more often than not, I meet with a lot of people that get hung up on those really little questions. How could God allow? How could God do this? Why hasn't this happened in my life yet? All questions that really, if you think about it, are based on temporary selfishness, my own life right now, that is a vapor to God. Are you hung up on those things? Because if you are, here's what happens. If you get hung up on those questions, you then inevitably will start walking and living without love because you're too fixated on what you believe God has for you. And the last one, and this is just kind of something I pulled into this text. Um, I want to come to hope. I think more often than not, many of us, uh, we live without hope. We, we see this, the current circumstances or we see the horizon of our life and we're like, man, I just, I, it, it's, it's insurmountable. It's impassable. I, I can't get there. He won't do this, she won't do that, and we just operate without hope. And, and my, man, if there's anything, anything that, that you take from this text, even if this is a secondary point altogether, we're going to be face-to-face and no complete. Like in the Lord, like if, if your hope is, if, if you just need to just do with me the favor, just, just, just take your hope that's fixated on the things in front of you and just lift it up. Let's just put it right where it belongs, the only one that can sustain hope. And say, God, I'm going to fix my eyes on you. And I'm going to, I understand that right now, I don't know why you would do this, but I also know that I'm in the partial. And I, and I, and I, don't, know, I don't know why you do this, but I also know that I don't know you fully yet. And so I'm going to hope on the fact that there's going to be a day where I'm standing face to face with my king, and I'm going to know him fully like he knows me fully. And I can hope on that. And so if your circumstances are bleak, if your situations are are just in, in a terrible spot right now, and you just can't see beyond it, I would just encourage you to, to, to look, look past it completely and look to the Lord. The, the band's going to come up, and we're going to worship some more. 
If you are struggling to, to find love in your life, if you're struggling to see these things play out, I would encourage you. We have the prayer room. You're welcome to get prayed for. Also, if you could just set in, like I needed this so much this week, just remind myself that of all the things that we could be giving ourselves to, of all the things that we could be spending time in, if I'm going to invest in something that is going to last forever, love is it. There's, if of all the other things you could give yourself to, when it comes to the one thing that will last forever, that never ends, that is greater than even faith and hope, which right now there's a lot of greatness that we put in faith, salvation. But love is even greater than that and lasts forever. It's love. And so if you need help um, understanding that, if you are struggling to find hope, um, I would encourage you to either write it on the communication card in front of you, you can put it in one of those offering buckets, or if you are bold, you can go back to the prayer room and get prayed for. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... Thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. How, how prideful it is for me, God, to think that I've even come close to loving you completely. But how amazing is it to even think that there's gonna be a day when we will fully know you. There's gonna be a day where, we're not, where, where our love isn't imperfect, where we don't fail at being patient or kind we don't fail at following through, God. There's going to be a day when, when all the questions we have, all the struggles we have are going to be known before you. And I, I can't help but think that many of the questions I have, God, just won't matter when I'm in your presence. And so, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for, uh, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for showing us what perfect love looks like. And thank you for giving us your spirit so that we can love the way that you loved. We praise you for this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.